0: any of C.S. Lewis' writings or not. Uh, If you haven't and you enjoy reading, I would recommend them. Um, He wrote a long time ago, but he brings um, kind of a fantasy approach to biblical truth in a way that few are able to do. Uh, Some of those books have been... um, not just reprinted or updated over the years, but um, they continue to bring us an awareness of our own relationship with the Lord, but also of the hope that exists because of Christ. And one that is more familiar, I think, to most of our series is the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, And it may be because it was converted to a movie. Uh, I'm not sure So if you're that person who likes books, particularly once there's a movie version, well, here you go. Uh, There is a movie version of the Chronicles of Narnia. In that movie, let me give you just a, a brief synopsis. It's called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and we're introduced to the world of Narnia. It was a once beautiful world that has now grown cold, and dark. The four Pavensi children come through a magical wardrobe to a snow-covered forest in Narnia where they learn that it's been winter for over a hundred years. Evil reigns. Hope is dead. But with the arrival of these children, things begin to change. The inhabitants of Narnia slowly begin to hope again. An ancient Narnian prophecy said that before deliverance would come, two sons of Adam and two daughters of Eve would appear. These children were messengers of hope. But the hopes of the citizens of Narnia are not in the children. Their hopes are in someone else, a lion named Aslan. The children hear an old Narnian rhyme. It says, wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter will meet its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. The Pevensy children brought hope, not in themselves, but in the one who would follow their coming and bring deliverance. Likewise, in John chapter 1, we meet a man who brought a message of hope. Hope not in himself, but in he who comes after me. The title of the message today comes from the text itself, and it is focusing our attention again on John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist appears numerous times in John's gospel, and since they have the same name, it works well to create confusion. And so one of the writers that I use for information and background and language study with regard to this refuses to refer to John the Baptist as John and just calls him the baptizer, over and over the baptizer, so there's no confusion. I'm not going to do that, but uh, you'll have to keep that in mind as we study that together. In John chapter 1, in verses 19 through 34, we see this brief synopsis regarding the ministry and the work of John the Baptist. Uh, It says in verse 19, and this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. What we find in the story then with regard to John the Baptist is a further extension of everything that we know about his calling Literally his birth, his calling, his ministry, all of it was an intended means of fulfilling the prophecy of the one who would come prior to the Messiah. He's the announcer. He's the one who prepares the way. He's the one that points the world to Jesus. Now to to do this at the very beginning is is I think helpful, at least for me. Because now what we can do is focus our attention at the outset on his purpose. And even though this is a narrative story that gives us kind of a a brief glimpse into some of the things that are happening near the end of John the Baptist's ministry, uh, it also gives us a kind of type, a form that we can follow. What John was doing was calling people to repentance, Believing and knowing that he was sent by God to do that and that repentance of sin and then baptism as a way of publicly defining and announcing that repentance was going to in turn make them receptive to the gospel that would come through Jesus, receptive to the Messiah. There's a principle here. There's a series of principles that continue to be repeated in the life of every believer. Remember, Jesus said to all Christians, go make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is not just the prescription for The church, it isn't just the prescription for vocational ministry, this is the prescription for every believer, and this is what we see in John the Baptist. He is preparing the way, calling people to repentance and faith, giving them hope and anticipation that they will find the fulfillment of all that they need through faith in Jesus Christ, pointing the way always to Jesus. So let's consider, as a church, what are we pointing people to? Do we point people to ourselves? Think about it. Churches are very competitive. I don't know if you know this or not. There's an old phrase that is really an insult, but nonetheless, it's become common knowledge. And it goes along when someone says something that may perhaps be a bit of an exaggeration, and they follow it with ministerially speaking. Now where does that come from? It comes from people reporting numbers. So when one pastor speaks to another, house church going, it's going great. How many did you have? And then he says, how many that were there? And then he says, well, you know, ministerially speaking, that means he counted the people who were there, the dogs that walked by on the parking lot outside. Uh, it means anybody who came by mistake to this church but really intended to go to a different one, uh, and and even the, I mean, if you're pregnant, well, you get counted as two. Uh, and now, I, I agree with that theologically and principally, but uh, we don't enroll them until after they're born. Ministerially speaking is a way that points people not to Jesus or truth, but to the achievement of self. Churches, I think, should be loyal. I think that we should build a sense of family and relational understanding between us that enables us not only to share, but to support, to hold accountable, to encourage all of the different things that go along with genuine relationships. But again, the motivation for it is not in order to point people to us. It must always be to point people to Jesus. And it's a difficult Balance to maintain and so the principle that we find in john the baptist is a reminder to us that everything about him from the moment of his conception forward was specifically guided by god in a manner that created an environment in which this man would live his entire life for a singular purpose of declaring jesus Two things out of this passage, only two. I know you're used to, you've got your notes already, you've already written down, points one, two, and three, and there's not a third one, I'm sorry. So there's only two today. Uh, don't, don't get lost in that. The first is the true identity of the messenger. In verses 19 through 28, we see that. But in the very beginning of it, in the passage I read to you in verses 19 through 21, John denies that he is the Christ, that he's the prophet Elijah, and that he is one that they refer to as the prophet. So when questioned by the priests and Levites, John answers clearly that he's none of these. He's not the Christ, he's not Elijah, and he's not the prophet. He does not fit any of the preconceived notions of the religious establishment. The priests and Levites have been sent as representatives from the larger group of the Pharisees. And the whole point of it is to question John because many people are coming. Hundreds and hundreds of people are coming to him. And they need to know. They need to know if he is a fulfillment of one of these prophecies. If so, what does that mean and how is that going to follow? So they come and they question. They want to know Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? John answers for them and makes it very clear that he's none of these things. So notice, he first of all denies that he's the Messiah. He's done some pretty profound things and people have seen the evidence of of the kind of message he has announced and all of the things that he's done. And so it follows that they might have thought maybe he is the one who is coming and that he is the one that will rally the nation together and ultimately throw off the bondage and the oppression of Rome and reestablish Israel and her kingdom for forever and do so and then subject every other nation to themselves. That's what they wanted. He's not that. John never had any claim to being able to save anyone. In fact, all he ever did was call people to repentance, call people to righteousness, call people to holiness, into to faith in God. He was calling them with the purpose of opening their hearts and minds. And we learn another principle. And that is, coming to Jesus requires an awareness of our own sin. Not just an awareness, but a sorrow, a brokenness. Repentance cannot happen as long as we're satisfied with sin. Repentance cannot take place as long as we cling to the things that separate us from God. John knew that, and he knew that to prepare the people for the coming Messiah, they would have to first acknowledge their sinfulness and repent, turn away from it, and turn back to God. Over and over, the Bible shows us example upon example of how he worked in order to perform his power and might in the midst of people, and he always did it by reminding and calling us to repentance and obedience. It's no different today. The message of the gospel is always going to be received most often by those who are in the state of greatest awareness of their own sin. I've never witnessed to anyone that I didn't talk about sin. I've never considered or contemplated my own relationship with Christ, that I am not brought to a greater awareness of my own sin. I've never experienced a moment in which we are drawn to the truth that is found only in Jesus unless we are also in the, the place where we can acknowledge the lies that our sin so often tells us. He denies he is the Christ he is there to announce the Christ. They thought maybe he was the prophet Elijah. You know a little bit about John the Baptist. He came from the wilderness, and that's where he proclaimed his message. And, and he wore a, a cloak of camel hair. He had a leather belt around his waist. Uh, he ate locust and wild honey and all kinds of things that made him very much like the prophet Elijah. Uh, Elijah was that kind of guy. Uh, the stories of Elijah are renowned, and of course, you know that as a prophet, he was uh, he was just amazing in the things that God did through him during some of the darkest days of Israel's history. Uh, at the end of his life, he didn't die, but he was taken up and, and escorted by uh, chariots of angels and uh, horses with flames all around them, and it was just a, a sight that is really unbelievable and unimaginable with that story though some people believe that maybe he never died at all and now he's come back and he gets round two or something and john the baptist is going to be him there's also the understanding that at the conclusion of of everything god is going to send before jesus comes two prophets and most of us believe that one of them will be elijah the other will be moses and so is John the Baptist Elijah. Well, he looks like him. He sounds a lot like him. He's calling the people with the same message that Elijah did, but he says, no, I'm not Elijah. I'm not Elijah. He says, are you the prophet? Notice he doesn't say, are you a prophet? Because he most certainly was that. He says, are you the prophet? This comes from a passage in Deuteronomy where Moses declares that God will one day send another. He will send the prophet who will come in the power and ministry of Moses and will be similar in many ways, but will carry that long be- further beyond what anything Moses has ever done or known. The prophet, as it is understood in the manner of Moses is a reference to Jesus. And so when he speaks of the Christ, he speaks of the Messiah, and he says, I'm not him, but then he also says, I'm not the prophet. He's talking about the same person. It's just that the Levites and priests didn't understand that. Now, they should have, but they didn't. And before you're too hard on them, think about all of the things that you and I should understand, but so often don't. Uh, It is hard to understand truth if our minds are filled with preconceived notions that are unyielding to the Spirit's guidance. That was exactly the situation in which they found themselves in this questioning of John. If you're none of these things, then who are you? John goes on to declare to them something that they hadn't asked. He said to them in verse 22, They ask, who are you? It's just a flat statement. And if you're not any of these people, then who are you? He said, we need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. The concept comes from Isaiah 40 and it isn't an exact quote from Isaiah 40 verse 3, but it's pretty close and we find it repeated throughout the New Testament and so it's a frequently quoted passage that reminds us somewhat of the emphasis that would have been present in that day as well. So what he's saying is I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness and he is calling out the idea in in chapter 40 of Isaiah that is sort of the context is the return, uh, the prophetic return of the exiles. And so the nation of Judah will go into exile in Babylon for 70 years. But the day will come when that exile will end. And when that exile ends, they will return to Jerusalem. They will return to Judah. And they will reestablish the worship of God that had been damaged as a result of their sinfulness. And they will restore the city of Jerusalem and all of the things that had been lost and all of the land that they had yielded because of their sinfulness and that God had taken from them as he told them that he would if they lived in disobedience then that time would come when they would come back and he would restore them in that time he says make straight the ways prepare for the return get rid of all the obstacles in other words what are the obstacles to your return to the place that god intends for you What are the interferences between you and full obedience? This is what John is doing. He's calling people to repentance in order to remove the obstacles and to make the path clear for people to return to Jesus. Those obstacles can be anything. It can be some sort of repetitive sin or some sort of unconfessed acknowledgement of sin, something that you're afraid of, some sort of fear that is paralyzing you or binding you. Maybe it's the expectations of others. Maybe it is past failure that you think God is not going to be able to forgive or willing to forgive. There's a list that could be endless and we could go on and on and each one would be unique and different. The point is that all of it combined together, he's reminding us, is a declaration to clear that stuff out of the way. Don't let that be an interference. It doesn't mean that you have to overcome every obstacle. It means you have to recognize that the obstacles between you and true faith in Christ have been overcome already. All that is necessary is for us to turn away from the things that bind us. And in so doing, turn to Jesus. John said, that's who I am. I'm the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, make straight the ways to the Messiah. God is delivering them from captivity and the way home is being prepared. In other words, God is preparing salvation as we turn from sin and turn to faith in the Messiah who is to come. We notice that as he speaks to this, the true identity of the messenger then now has been revealed. He says, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, the one who was prophesied by Isaiah. But notice in verses 24 through 28, now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie, these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. John directs the Jews then to Jesus at this point. They question, why is he baptizing? And he answers them with a very simple statement, I baptize with water. Baptism is an interesting thing, and there's probably not one single doctrinal issue in the Bible that is more divisive than our views on baptism. Uh, If you come from ecclesiastical church background, whether it's Catholic or Lutheran, maybe even Presbyterian, uh, you are accustomed to the baptism of infants. That is something that is taught in those church traditions. And even though there is absolutely no biblical evidence for such a practice nor any indication that the early church in the first centuries of its development ever did that, nonetheless it is something that is adhered to um, almost viciously over the years. But there's a lot of differences between Baptist and Catholic, so you know, they, well, you wouldn't have to spend a lot of time trying to figure that out. What about Baptist? Aren't we all in agreement on baptism? No, as a matter of fact, we're not. Uh, There are a host of Baptist groups. Southern Baptist is the one that we are affiliated with, and it is the one that is the most well-known probably. It's the largest of the groups. But there are others that are quite significant as well, and have been around almost as long as we have, and among them there are a variety of views on baptism. Some believe that baptism is necessary uh, in order for salvation to be complete. Some believe that baptism must be administered by a certain lineage, therefore using something that, uh, well, let's say the Church of Christ, they they practice this. Uh, they follow called the Trail of Blood, believing that they can trace the lineage of the baptism of the church all the way back to John the Baptist himself. Uh, There is an influence of landmarkism in the Baptist uh, uh, groups uh, of of some of the ones that I've spoken of. They believe the same thing or similar things uh, and deny that, that Baptists today come from any sort of connection to the Protestant Reformation or things of that sort. Uh, So there's a wide variety of belief regarding baptism. So what do we believe? We believe that baptism is absolutely and utterly symbolic, meaning that it has no saving power in and of itself. And yet at the same time, we believe that baptism must always be practiced in the manner and mode in which we see in the example of Jesus which was, he was baptized by John the Baptist and in the example of the early church who always baptized by immersion. And so we believe that it is, it is always followed in this way. So baptism is practiced by immersion. It is always practiced in a manner that is consistent with what we see in the biblical record and what we know regarding the early church and what we find in the example most of all in testimony of Jesus himself. But does it save you? It does not. It does not. Does it make you more saved? It does not. It does not. It does make you more obedient. Baptism ultimately is about obedience and identity. Why do we baptize? I already told you. Jesus said make disciples and baptize them. End of discussion. That's why we do it. Identity, Paul helps us to understand, comes from the experience of baptism in which we are united with Christ in baptism. We are identified with him. First, his death, which paid the penalty of our sin, and then as we come out of the water, his resurrection, which identifies us with the new life we have in Jesus and in the indwelling spirit. It becomes a testimony and example. Think about it. Think about why God went to such great lengths to ensure that everyone knew that Jesus was his son when he was baptized. The same thing is true for us. We practice baptism not in order to add to one's salvation, but to declare that and to seal that in your mind through your identity with Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Why are you baptizing? He says, I baptize with water. What he's telling us isn't just the way that he's going about it. He's saying, look, what I'm doing is nothing compared to what's about to happen. What I'm doing is not an offense or front to anything that you know through Judaism, nor is it going to be sufficient for the salvation that is coming. He was doing this as a way of helping people to solidify the commitment that they had made. His authority to baptize was simply an extension of role as the voice of one crying out to the people to prepare for Jesus' coming. But notice what he does. It says, not only did he ask why he answered them, I'm baptizing with water, but he said, among you stands one you do not know even he who comes after me he directs them to jesus there's one coming whose sandals I'm unworthy to untie the humility of john is on full display in light of the soon appearance of jesus on the public public understanding this platform is going to change dramatically John is essentially saying, I'm not the one you need to know, but rather the one who comes after me. Every good witness ultimately directs the world or the person to whom they witness to Jesus is the ultimate answer to the question, where is your hope? Our hope is in Jesus. It's not in the church. It's not in baptism. It's not in John. It's not in any of the things that we so often fixate on. It is always, ultimately, and forever in Jesus. Secondly, that was the first point. This is the second one. And no, it's not longer. Verse 29 says, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The true deity of the Messiah now is what we see. We see the identity of the messenger, but now the true deity of the Messiah. He is the Lamb of God. John proclaimed Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This account takes place just days before their celebration of Passover, commemorating God's deliverance of Israel from Egyptian slavery. You will see the Passover motif appear numerous times throughout John's Gospel, and you will find, and that 's John the Apostle, uh, John the Apostle makes it very clear, and he utilizes this this imagery and this picture of Passover in order to emphasize the deity of Christ. So what are we learning? You remember Passover this takes place in Egypt when the people are still in bondage, and the plagues have come against them and And Pharaoh has refused to release them from their bondage. And so one final plague is to come and it will be the angel of death that will come through the land so that the firstborn of every house will perish. In order to protect them... From the death that is coming, God instructs that a lamb without blemish would be slain, its blood collected, and then smeared on the doorpost of the homes, so that every home that had blood on the door would be passed over by the angel of death. What he's showing us and what is being signaled to all the world and will then be realized when Jesus comes is what we have known all along, that there is no remission of sin without the shedding of blood. Some don't like this because they find it to be too graphic or too violent or too intense, but it would be well for us all to be reminded that sin is graphic and sin is violent and sin is destructive. And it is, it is an insult to the crucifixion of Jesus himself for us to in any way minimize the importance of his shed blood. John says, behold, the true ultimate lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. How will that happen? The shedding of his blood. In giving Jesus this designation, John the Baptist is projecting what is soon to come in his death on the cross. Deliverance from sin, then, cannot happen without the shedding of blood. The type that is represented in Egypt would find its eternal fulfillment in Christ, even now. The purpose of the Messiah was evident in the imagery of sin that leads to death. And only by the shedding of blood can we be redeemed. So that when you profess faith in Jesus, you are believing and saying with all confidence that what Jesus has done when he died on the cross and shed his blood was sufficient to pay the cost of our sin. So that when I trust in him, my sins are forgiven, washed away. By the perfect blood of the perfect lamb. But look what he says in verse 30. This is he of whom I said after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. He shows us that Jesus not only is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, but He is Himself God. John's Gospel specifically is intended to affirm the deity of Christ, that He is in fact God, not just some historical figure, not just a man upon whom God came and then left, but He is God from the moment of His conception, throughout all of His life, from the time that He laid for three days dead in a tomb, and to the moment He rose from the dead and ascended back to the father he has always been the means by which this world came into existence and the one in whom it depends to hold together john the baptist makes it clear that jesus is not only the christ but he has always been god and he is god now he says he is before me meaning that he has been eternally before me And then in verses 31 through 33, it says, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. The Synoptic Gospels give us a clearer statement regarding the baptism of Jesus and more information. John uh, only provides for us brief glimpses of that, uh, but enough to be affirmed through the testimony of John the Baptist. Um, You know the story. Jesus came to John at the Jordan River where so many were gathered on the shores there who were hearing the message of of repentance and they were repenting of their sins and then they were identifying with that repentance in a public way through baptism. John was baptizing people. Jesus said, I want you to baptize me. He said, no, no, no. He said, you're, you're the Messiah. You, you should be baptizing me. This doesn't make any sense. And, and he says, no. He said, it's important that you do this. And they go out into the water. He baptizes Jesus. He comes out of the water. And the Bible tells us the heavens open, and the Spirit of God descended in the form of a dove. And then John tells us here, and remained. That's key. The Spirit descended and remained. This was his sign. This was what God had told him to look for. This is what you and I need to be looking for. There are a lot of people claiming to be some sort of quasi-Messiah in the world today that are offering hope and meaning and purpose and all kinds of different things. But what I'm telling you is they have no presence or power of the Holy Spirit. had a conversation this week and one of the things that came up in that conversation was that, that the, the thing that this person appreciated was that while I may be fairly accomplished in my use of language, that I never deny the limitations I have as a person. And I'm not saying that braggingly, in fact, It kind of makes me sad, but I got to tell you, I never walk to this pulpit, whether it's on a Sunday morning, whether it's a funeral service or a wedding or any other occasion that would be a call upon me to speak on behalf of God or to share his word in a way that will help others to be understand. I never do that that I do not pray for the indwelling Holy Spirit to speak through me. So, that, so if what you're getting is consistent with truth and something that is inspired in you by what God is doing, please know that's not me. That's him. I am as broken and destitute as you. And quite a bit more so than some of you. What I'm telling you is that what makes us who we are in Christ is not our achievements, accomplishments, or some image that we can project. It is the power of the Holy Spirit that changes us. And that power was seen remaining on Jesus at his baptism. So that when God spoke, he said, This is my beloved son. In whom I'm well pleased. John testifies that Jesus is the Christ. He is God. And it is confirmed through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit who rested upon him at that occasion that everybody else witnessed as well. Finally, in verse 34, he says this. I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. He's confirmed by the Spirit. He has been with God from before there was time at all. He is the Lamb of God who will sacrifice His blood for the redemption and the forgiveness of our sins. Why? Because He is the Son of God. And so in this brief passage, this brief narrative, John the Baptist completes for us the better understanding of the Trinity. He shows us all three members and he shows us what God is up to and what he is doing through Jesus Christ in his coming so that he is always in even the most subtle of means directing everyone who hears his message to Jesus. How can, if that is so important to him, we do less We can't. We are here as a voice crying out, prepare your heart, repent of your sin, receive Jesus. He is our only hope. It is not about me. It is always about the one who came after.